0: Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at
1: opioidresponse.info.
2: Here we go, the start of another week on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. I hope all of you had a restful Weekend, And of course, most importantly, I hope you had a healthy weekend and that you continue to stay healthy as the pandemic, pandemic continues uh, to uh, trouble our state as it's doing. Um, we want to go back and talk about schools again today because uh, more school systems are either already underway. We know of some of them that are. Uh, we're going to re- talk on what's happening in them Uh, and more are getting set to open in the days ahead, and so we put together a terrific panel to discuss uh, just what issues uh, the state of Georgia is dealing with with schools uh, getting underway again. That includes Jim Galloway, my partner on Mondays and Fridays on Political Rewind. Jim, of course, is the lead political writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Dead Tree edition of the paper, but you can also read him at ajc. dot com, where he oversees the political insider uh, block. Uh, Jim, you haven't done any damage to your uh, body as you did a few weeks ago working in your woodshop this weekend. I hope. Now no, with no, your no, thumb just or finger at this point.
3: It's it's. I got the bandages oh. off. It looks terrible, but I got the bandages off. So got so, so, got a, got well, a, date. Got a date with a date with the doctor today. Uh, and so, but but with this Please panel, I'm, I'm, I, I plan to just to sit back and listen, truthfully.
2: Yeah, that's kind of the way, uh, yeah, I kind of feel the same way uh, about that. Um, I'm joined by one of my colleagues, Ellen Eldridge. You uh, just heard her report on NPR's morning edition as she talked about what was happening up at the, Schools in Paulding County, Ellen has really been staying on top of problems, in, particularly in Cherokee County, Paulding County, reporting on it for our website, GPB website, and uh, now on radio as well. Um, and Ellen, I want to, you are one of the three people on this panel who have a very personal stake in what's happening here. You have children in the Cherokee County school system. So this is not just something you're following as a journalist. You have a personal stake in all this.
4: Hi. Good morning, Bill. Yes, I do. I have children. And uh, thank goodness for my husband because he is at home overseeing their digital education right now.
2: And, and, and so that's going to be an issue we're going to talk about a little later in the show. Just who is watching over uh, students who are at home. And, and that's becoming a more and more interesting story. But what grades are your kids in? My son
4: is in second grade and my daughter is in fourth grade.
2: How are they doing with digital learning, with um, online learning?
4: Well, my daughter's actually in the AIM program, in the gifted program. She's um, (laughs) fiercely independent and a little too smart for my own good, I think. Uh, So she's doing really well because she's independent. My son, he actually in the spring with my husband kind of standing over him and keeping him in his seat, he's done a little bit better, we think with the individualized attention coupled with the school's digital learning. So those were some of the factors that went into our decision.
2: I should also say that um, in addition to tracking the uh, schools, one of the uh, places from which you do that is in your new position as a medical reporter for GPB News. Congratulations on uh, that designation, having that beat to follow. Uh, Maureen Downey who is one of the most highly respected education uh, commentators, analysts, reporters in uh, Georgia. Uh, you read her column, Get Schooled, in the AJC. Uh, Maureen, you've been doing this work for a long time. And before we talk about your, your professional side, you too have a stake in this, although your, your kids are college age, they're dealing with their own peculiar set of problems, Right.
1: Yes. Good morning to all. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. I think this is really an important topic. I have twins who are in uh, one at Georgia Tech and one at University of Georgia. And um, it, it's, they're essentially going back to their campuses, as are all the public colleges in Georgia. But uh, for the most part, my children, looking at their schedule, will be, will be in online classes. So it's an interesting issue because the risk to them and to other kids, because so many classes, are either hybrid, whether it'll be partly online or fully online, I think it'll be actually living uh, in Athens and living on the Georgia Tech campus that'll pose the problems uh, to to students as we start the semester up in a couple weeks.
2: Well, you're obviously got that personal stake watching that, but you've been following very closely what's happening in K through twelve schools as reopenings begin, and we're going to talk with you about uh, all of that in just a moment. Now, but be- but before we do, Um, I'm really thrilled that Sarah Riggs Amico is with us today. Um, You know her uh, uh, primarily as a candidate. She was a candidate for governor back in 2018, Democratic candidate in the primaries, and then uh, ran for the United States Senate uh, in uh, the election uh, this year. Uh, She's also been a longtime uh, business executive in Atlanta, Harvard Business School graduate, And, Sarah, I don't think people know. You sort of uh, kind of went out of our sights for a while after the primary election, after John Ossoff won that primary. And people may not know that one of the reasons for that is you and your family all developed, or at least some of you, developed COVID-19. Tell us about that, and are you okay?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me this morning, Bill. Um, About mid-June, so right after the primary Uh, My husband and I both came down with COVID, uh, as did one of our daughters who is seven years old. Uh, Like Ellen, I have a second grader and a fourth grader, both girls in my case. Um, Our nine-year-old never got a positive test, but we're quite certain that she also had it, and she's actually had the longest symptoms. So um, unfortunately, my symptoms lasted about six weeks. Uh, my parents were about five weeks. Oh. Um, we were very fortunate. We were not hospitalized, but it's it's always a bit, um, you know, it's upsetting when you wake up in the morning and you're coughing up blood. Uh, this virus is not a hoax. It oh. attacks healthy and young people. You know, seven weeks later, my nine-year-old is still struggling with symptoms. And, if, uh, you know, this morning there's a news story out about 97,000 children testing positive for COVID in the last two weeks of July, so it is concerning when we talk about schools opening, and I say that as somebody who lived through COVID and still has some of the side effects, uh, occasionally it smells like something is burning next to me no matter where I'm standing. Um, I lost my sense of taste for a couple of weeks but was grateful to get that back, uh, but it's also concerning to me as a, a parent of two kids in the public school system and the granddaughter of a retired public school teacher. So I think I'm grateful that you're covering this issue. I think it's um, it's on the mind of every parent I know, and especially for those of us who are working parents with young kids.
2: Yeah, I, first of all, I'm terribly sorry that your family has gone through this, and especially for your daughter who continues to experience some symptoms. And I, I, I know that everybody who's listening and hearing you uh, joins me in saying we hope she, these symptoms vanish as quickly as possible. Um, but thank you for being with us today. Jim, I wanna, I do think it's important uh, as we then go, you know, uh, uh, dig down into what's happened at some of the schools here. Uh, I do think, unfortunately, this whole issue uh, comes within a political context. Sarah pointed out the uh, recent reporting that just since mid-July, 98,000 children uh, uh, have been reported to have COVID-19. Now, in in, in this reporting, children can range anywhere up to... Different states have children at different ages. Some of them go up to age 24. Others have younger kids. But the larger figure is... In, in the months preceding that, and up till now, some 338,000 children have been diagnosed with COVID-19. So there is a political beginning for this story, Jim, which is this, President Trump continues to say that the virus will simply go away magically, but more to the point in terms of our show today, he says, oh, children are largely immune. And unfortunately, that has driven to some extent some of the decisions that are being made in schools in Georgia and elsewhere about how to deal with the virus,
3: Jim. Right, right. I mean, uh, and, and Maureen could probably uh, provide more details, but uh, for instance, in uh, North Paulding High School is just within a, a stone's throw of, of, of where I live, <clears throat> and actually where Sarah lives. Uh, in fact, my, 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 my oldest uh, was a student teacher there. But but the chairman the, the chairman of the Paulding County School Board, I think we've got him quoted in the paper today in Bill Torpy's uh, column as, as as saying, you know, the C D C guidelines that were supposed to 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 kind of govern the opening of these schools schools was a a, a load of uh, stuff. Uh, but he didn't say stuff. The exact quote is the exact quote
2: is uh, from the uh, uh, school board chair, Jeff Fuller. CDC is not a governing authority in the state. All they can do is make recommendations. He said this at a school board meeting. And then he said, those guidelines, in my my opinion, are complete crap. Uh, He said that he wants Paulding schools to, quote, lead the way in an absolute normal return to normal activities on August 3rd without buying into the hype that is out there. Maureen, what happened at uh, North Paulding High School?
1: Well, what happened at North Paulding High School and is likely going to happen across the country, uh, Georgia is a standout, because we sent our kids back so early, is that uh, they don't have a mandatory mask uh, requirement, and so the majority of of kids were not wearing masks. They also... um, All schools are facing an impossible task in trying to have a normal school day, which is what parents really want, just as, as the chairman said. And uh, social distancing, you can't bring 2,000 kids back to North Paulding High School with no adjustment, no extra space, and think that they're going to be able to keep six feet apart. So what happened is school opened as normal in the context of last week. Uh, the kids were all on top. When I say on top of each other. It was a normal opening week for a high school. Kids were close to each other. They sat in similar classroom formats. And we're not sure if the kids who uh, tested positive or the staff brought COVID with them, which is probably likely. I think the key thing to remember in our discussion today is every every, uh, health specialist I've talked to says the same thing. If you have COVID in your community, you will have COVID in your schools. So we are opening schools and the infections are bleeding into our schools. So North Paulding High School closed today and tomorrow for deep cleaning. And that, that's what's happening now. And I suspect we will see this replayed across Georgia.
4: Yeah. And in Cherokee County, the same thing. It's I found it interesting because I believe in Cherokee we're up to 48 positive COVID cases. That's district wide. And right around 478 people are under quarantine. So in some instances, entire classes are out. In others, only the people who were deemed to have been in close contact are on quarantine. So if nothing else, it's incredibly disruptive.
2: So how many cases do we uh, uh, have reported between students and teachers in North Paulding High School? Ellen, you've been looking at that, I think. They or have two, nine, I think.
4: Yeah, there are nine cases in North Paulding High School, I believe. And that's why the school closed down for deep cleaning. But again, if the experts are saying that transmission is happening through droplets, respiratory droplets, then I'm not even sure how much a deep cleaning is going to do to prevent further transmission when the kids come back.
2: Sarah, um, your kids are uh, not going to be in class. Uh, they're going to have to learn at home. Um, I assume that for the time being that you're, you're happy about that. Um, and, and I want to, you know, later in the show talk, though, about the impact that has on you as a professional. Uh, it, but let's, for the f- next few minutes, talk about it in terms of how children are learning. What is, what is having them sit at computers and try to learn lessons that way? Do you think, what is the impact that has on their ability to really learn the way they would if they were in class. Does it disturb you? Do you think uh, distant, I mean, uh, uh, online learning can be just as effective? What are you, what's your take on that as a mother?
0: Yeah, I'm grateful that Cobb County Schools made the decision to start the year virtual. As Jim mentioned, uh, I live in West Cobb County, so Paulding and Cherokee are practically neighbors for us. And I'm not surprised to see what happens there. You know, they say that the 48 hours before you're symptomatic are some of the the most contagious period of somebody who has COVID. So things like temperature checks and staying home if you have symptoms won't prevent the spread during that period. So I'm certainly grateful for the digital um, and online decision that Cobb County School District made. I will say, you know, for us in the spring, it was a bit of a debacle, Um, Our our kids, you will not be surprised to hear, are both extroverts, and I think they're also very young. So for young school-age children, that social interaction and the ability to be with peers and to see a teacher and build that relationship is a tremendous part of the learning process. There's no one that's arguing, um, as far as I know, and the experts uh, that have been speaking out on this, there's no one arguing that digital learning is better than in person. I think the question is fully, how do we get back in a safe manner? But it, you know, it's kind of comical too, right? For us, um, luckily my husband is an engineer uh, and a tech company startup founder, so we had to sort of pull out old laptops from the basement And he called it excavating them. Uh, He reprogrammed them so that they would have devices to go to school on. And I can guarantee you, if it had been left to me, those poor kids would have probably been on my phone (laughs) taking turns. Uh, I could not have reprogrammed a laptop. But we're also really fortunate. I mean, think about how many people – don't have even an old laptop or tablet laying around that their kids can use you know the digital divide here has been exposed writ large and and even if you have a device remember that there are literally hundreds of thousands of georgians who don't have access to high-speed internet so you know once you close that digital divide if you're able to you then have to put a kid who may be 20 feet away from a television he or she watches or video games they play or their favorite board game or just the great, you know, backyard um, that you're trying to battle for their attention and convince them that they need to do schoolwork. And let's be honest, I think one of the biggest takeaways from the spring is just how grateful we are for pros and teachers and educators and staff because a lot of us realized why that wasn't our professional calling so uh, it, it's been a it's been a learning journey I am grateful and I'm also I, the last thing I'll say on this bill is deeply disappointed there is no one in this country who didn't know we were going back to school this fall um, we have some of the most remarkable public health medical and education experts anywhere in the world in this country and yet it seems that we arrived at the started the school year with virtually no convening of these experts to help school districts make a plan to help keep our kids safe. And, you know, on the other hand, my husband's family, as you know, my husband is from Italy. um, They did the tough stuff. For months and months, they didn't leave. But when we talked to my in-laws last week, they were going out for the first time in four months to a restaurant. And slowly but surely, life in Italy is starting to get back to normal. And it's heartbreaking for those of us who have kids to know that that could have been the case for our kids going back into the school year were it not for pretty tremendous failures of policy and leadership.
2: You know, there, uh, Jim, there's an awful lot we can unpack with what uh, Sarah just said. One of the things, of course, is it, uh, this notion of the, the, the divide, the digital divide. Yet again, the pandemic is exposing, in even more starker terms, uh the the gaps that we have among people in our society uh, today. We've seen the racial disparities uh, come to light, but certainly the digital abilities and competencies of people uh, in in our state is exposed. And, Jim, I find it heartbreaking when when I read the stories about parents who have to drive their kids around a town, a community, to find a place where there's a public Wi-Fi at a restaurant or a store of some sort and sit in a parking lot so they can do their lessons. I mean, that to me, Jim, is just, I, I can't even imagine how difficult that becomes.
3: Well, it's, 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 it's a confluence of, of uh, educational shortcomings and healthcare shortcomings because because at the same time where we are we are now relying more than ever on on digital learning here uh you know you, you you've also got this push toward t- telemedicine as a as as the one solution for rural georgia and uh uh it's not that we don't have enough bandwidth uh to, to do that it's that we don't have any bandwidth
4: i think in in addition to everything that sarah said too i my family were incredibly fortunate to have the, we, we literally have a community in our house. My father lives with us, he's 73 years old, and my mother-in-law, my husband's mother, now lives with us, she's 76 years old. So, a lot of what I hear from the community and on social media, there are a lot of parents out there, a lot of individuals, people with children, who simply don't have those kinds of resources, Uh, I've got somebody to literally help my kids almost at every moment. I can still leave. I can work a full-time job. But there are single parents who have children with IEPs and special needs and children who, for them, the risk is more intense of not having their socialization needs met than it is if they were to get the virus. And that's still, it's tricky because there's so much the health experts don't know about the virus yet, long-term effects specifically. And we're still even learning, you know, like I said, about transmission and stuff. There's some debate as to whether it's picked up on surfaces or or spread, you know, via the droplets. And, And some people feel strongly about not wearing masks. So those voices, I think, a lot of times get bogged down because of the political atmosphere as well, and they're afraid to speak out, or really just nervous to speak to media. It's harder for me to get those voices on the record.
1: Now, talking about the political ramifications of this, I think we're talking about some really stark failures. We have a long-term failure, both in the state and nationally, of getting Internet to rural areas. Initiatives began about 10 years ago, and frankly, they just stalled, and nobody sort of paid attention. Then we have the massive political failure to enforce truly effective mandates. I, I really am baffled why any school system opening, and many in the next few weeks outside of Metro Atlanta, are opening without mask mandates. They are not mandating their kids wear them, and they are not mandating their staff wear them. And I, I, um, I was talking to parents who oppose masks, and they have a lot of good reasons. Their kids won't keep them on. Their kid may have asthma, and they contend that that's an impediment. Um, but there's also parents who believe it's a free choice issue. And I don't know how it got couched in those terms. I don't know how we came to the point that something that can save the life of a teacher a custodian in the building, why we are now treating that politically, and maybe Jim can talk about how Georgia got to this point where our mask debate is a political debate and not a health
3: debate, yeah, you know bill, one of the more interesting things uh that came out uh last week over in in the in the North Paulding high flap was a statement from the- uh, the state the, the the county school superintendent. Uh, in a, in a letter to community the, to the community parents and and everyone else and he said that that that, that a that a, a mask mandate would not be enforceable in high school uh i've got a, i've got a have got a daughter who's a high school teacher and part of her job is to make sure that the girls aren't wearing t- skirts that are too short they're not showing midriffs that the boys aren't wearing baseball caps no hoodies uh uh high school is designed to enforce uh, 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 clothing wear, uh, and the other part of this, you know, the, the, the one, one thing that really puzzles me here, uh, to to, to Marine's point on the on the political issue, okay, Governor Brian Kemp has, I mean, he went even went on a, a a a a a statewide tour to encourage the use of masks, but in the aftermath of those photos that we saw in Paulding County High, the the one place where he should have been would, would have been in a, in, in a North Paulding High School gym, telling these students that, is, that, that masking is the, the appropriate and right thing to do. And we have not seen that. Uh, that's, it, that's not a message that when that recommendation is challenged, you don't see uh, a pushback by the governor or the governor's people.
0: In fact, we haven't seen the governor at all, Jim, on this, and it's upsetting in a host of ways. We haven't seen him talking about the need to improve social distancing guidelines. I'd like him to be out front and lead. That's the job people put him in office to do. And I will say I don't think this discussion is complete without also talking about the remarkable race gap Uh, in COVID, not just in the population at large, but in children. You know, there was a study the CDC put out recently um, that I believe over three quarters uh, or just about three quarters of the kids who've been hospitalized with COVID are Latinx or black. Um, In Georgia, uh, the black population is about 30% of our state, but they've been over half of the COVID deaths and earlier in the summer, the CDC did a study that showed they were also above 80 percent. I think it was around 83 percent of hospitalizations. So you're talking about exposing some of these deep structural institutional level um, divides, the lack of equity in our healthcare system, in access to health care and also in our rural communities. Um, it is uh, it is mind-blowing to me that the governor hasn't revisited the idea, for example, of expanding Medicaid in our state. It is one way to help keep rural hospitals open. It could cover almost half a million additional Georgians who don't have health insurance. It becomes very difficult to control a pandemic uh, when access to health care is simply not equal for all communities.
2: Uh, I want to get to a break, but before I do, Ellen, real quickly, obviously, uh, Georgia got national headlines again uh, over the photographs from North Paulding uh, High School uh, with all the uh, uh, students crowding in the hallway, most of them not wearing masks, um, and uh, we we were exposed in in many people's views as uh, uh, simply refusing to take the virus seriously when you Saw those uh, uh, photographs, and you reported on that, Ellen.
4: Yeah, it's definitely a perspective that I'm seeing out there. There are certainly a number of people who simply do not believe that this virus is as big of a deal as it may turn out to be. There are people who have said that the flu kills more people, which we know is not accurate. Um, the masking debate is its really confusing because, again, it, it just seems to me it's, it's gotten— political when it's really at its heart a public health issue and the governor did go on a masking tour and he is strongly encouraging it uh the superintendent richard woods even said that school boards have the the right to enforce mask mandates yet some counties cherokee and paulding they have decided that it's a freedom of choice issue
2: all right i gotta get to a break when i come back um i want to ask you all so what do we do about this What what are your thoughts on, you know, schools are going to continue to open, some in person. Um, Nobody wants their kids to be sitting at home in front of a computer screen forever, trying to absorb algebra. So I want to get some thoughts from you on on what you think are the practical ways we can approach this. And then I want to talk about what this means to women in the workforce. We'll do all that when we come back on Political Rewind. (laughs) AJC's Jim Galloway Galloway and Maureen Downey uh, join us today. So does Ellen Eldridge, uh, medical and health reporter for GPB News. And Sarah Riggs Amico, fresh off of her run for the United States Senate, and then more unfortunately, uh, having to uh, get over COVID-19, are all with us uh, today. Uh, before we go on to talk about this topic a very quick program note. Jim, uh, we know that the Democratic National Committee has begun to release uh, some specifics about the program that they're going to run starting next Monday, uh, uh, August th- uh, 17th, Monday through Thursday night. We learned uh, that there's an Atlanta bus driver, a woman who is going to be featured one night. They want to do a lot with real people I mention all this because starting next Monday, Political Rewind is going to be covering both the Democratic Convention next week and the Republican Convention the week after, the way we essentially plan to were we in Milwaukee and Charlotte, which means a lot of attention to what's happening, talking to delegates, talking to surrogates for the campaigns, uh, playing some of the speech elements for you, and getting a lot of analysis.
3: So, uh, Jim, do we know about this bus driver? Yeah, yeah. Let's give a shout out to Natasha Taylor. Uh, sh- uh, she's right. uh, she's a member of <laughs> Amalgamated Transit uh, Union Local 732, uh, and she's yeah, she okay. she's going to, she's going to be she's going to be giving us the word next week.
2: Oh, I can already hear the Republicans saying, look at that. They're featuring a union person, the, you know, typical Democratic move. <laughs> well, uh, we'll be uh, covering the conventions in some depth. And, Jim, you'll be part of what we uh, do, of course. All right. Um, so, uh, Maureen, I'm. what do we do next? I, I, I read that now Cobb County and Gwinnett counties, which have said, yes, we'll start the school year virtually are now beginning to make plans to slowly phase in in school in school classes and we don't know exactly i don't think what that means you may have more information than i do but they do want to start getting kids back into school can we maureen i know you're not the public health expert you're not a virologist but are they tempting fate uh trying to do this
1: well, I certainly think they're aggravating their teachers. One thing we haven't talked about is nothing in my 30-plus wow. career has so energized and so angered the teaching profession as what is happening with COVID-19. And I probably over the weekend got more than 100 emails or Facebook messages from Gwinnett County teachers because their phasing plan does have dates attached to it. They're going to start phasing in August 26th with the hope that they'll have everyone back, all students back uh, September 9th. Winnet teachers think that is insane. Uh, They think that it is very dangerous for the students and very dangerous for them. And so, you know, I I think right now, somehow or other, months ago I wrote that I feel like school districts with their reopening plans are marching toward a cliff and are simply gonna jump. And I think that's what we've seen. I am hoping, really, that the experiences in the, in the uh, canaries in the mines of uh, both Cherokee and Paulding County might have superintendents around the state rethinking. Because one major issue that we haven't talked about is what do frequent quarantines do to students? So, for example, uh, Cherokee County is sending entire classes home for two weeks. That means that these kids are sitting home. They don't actually slide into the digital uh, programming because that's already up and running. They're, they're working with their home-based teacher but if your if your kid ends up having three quarantines this year because they were exposed to somebody else, that means your your child could be out of school for more than a month. For and we know that losing even ten days of school a year impacts achievement. So I, I think really, I really want these superintendents before they jump off the cliff to consider what's below.
3: Uh, yeah, Bill. Um... Uh, in in Cobb County, I've got a little little bit of uh, attachment t- to that uh, phase one. A- again, no dates. I think it's all geared toward uh, with the community infection rate. But f- uh, phase one is actually pretty pretty basic, and and it it gets at students who are in closed classrooms, special needs uh, kids, uh, uh, for instance, and and who are very dependent on on in person contact. Uh, then you move to phase two marine I think that's that's what uh, that, that incorporates some middle school phase three is 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 high school uh, no dates attached to, to any of those in Cobb uh, but look you know I, I, I've mentioned on the on the program before I've got a have got a, a a daughter who is a high school teacher and and this 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 weekend we came to the conclusion as soon as Cobb County hits phase three and she's in the classroom with real kids we can't see her anymore. Yeah, we we uh, not without not without um, you know a mask uh, and not not at six feet not in, unless the distance is more than six feet away. Ellen I, Maureen's point really uh, deserves a little
2: more explication. I, I think what I'm she didn't actually argue for this, but you could certainly make an argument based on what she said that school systems right now ought to make a decision period about what they're going to do you can't go back and forth this notion of a phase in where as she points out you might have a quarantine because somebody gets COVID, like we saw in paulding like we've seen in cherokee ellen it it's bad for the student why not just say unequivocally we are going to be an online learning school between now and the end of the semester That not only protects the students, but what do you do with teachers who have to have two completely different sets of lesson plans? One's plan based on in-classroom learning, the other based on online learning. It just seems there could have been very specific decisions made that would be lasting for a period of time. Am I making sense?
4: I, I think that I am very happy to be a healthcare reporter and not a school board member or a politician or somebody who actually has to make these decisions because they are difficult decisions to make. I can only imagine what goes on in the minds of the school board members when you have so many parents screaming that they need their kids in school, you know, students with special needs, students it, there's a very real uptick in deaths of despair. And teenagers, they they need that social contact. They need to see their friends. It's it's not just a matter of not caring about other people. <laughs> that argument can and has been made when it comes to wearing a mask. Um, but there there are very real considerations for being in class. That being said, we are very much in a pandemic right now. There is a real virus out there. It is deadly. Uh, I myself had the thought that we had kept our children pretty well under lock and key since March, and we just wouldn't find out how much children could be affected until schools open. And I was surprised really to see so many cases so fast the very first week that – I mean, as an individual, I'm glad that I chose digital learning because we have the resources in my family to do that and because it's less disruptive. I don't know what happens to those children. If half of your class is sent home for quarantine, I don't understand the process by which they're continuing their education at home.
0: Yeah, I think Ellen is on uh, on point here, and remember that there are a number of single working parents, um, essential workers, and again, overrepresented among frontline and essential workers are black and brown families, um, many of whom are, are really having to struggle. There are daycares that are not reopening at the same rate as schools. Uh, this presents a tremendous problem for working families, and I'm deeply sympathetic to it. What I'm not sympathetic to is the failure of leadership that got us here in the first place. Uh, You know, the idea that Gwinnett is gonna phase open public school systems independent of what the data are telling us about community transmission is insane. Um, What we should have done was tackle the community spread of this virus and lock it down, take the tough medicine earlier in the outbreak of the pandemic, not only to save lives, but to give us the best chance of reopening the economy quickly and in a manner that doesn't punish essential workers and working families, um, families that are really struggling right now. You know, there were more than a third of Americans early this summer who couldn't make their rent or mortgage payment. We're on the cusp of, um, you know, housing crisis, the likes of which this country hasn't seen since the Great Depression. And if you think about it, because we've coupled health insurance and health care coverage in this country to employment for working families, you're now dealing with a triple threat, not just losing your job and your income potentially as this outbreak is prolonged and we have mismanaged the reopening. uh, But then you may lose your health care in the middle of a pandemic for your family. And on top of that, your housing. Um, This is a disaster for working people. And the sad thing about it, Bill, is that it was utterly avoidable. It didn't have to be this way. This is what a failure of leadership looks like. And if we're if we're lucky, we're going to take course corrective actions now to lock this down so that we can get back on track.
3: Actually, um, Bill, she brings up uh, Sarah. Brings up a good point. Uh, You are we are about to to uh, enter a period where you have uh, mass evictions of people from their homes and in educational terms that means additional transiency which means you could have you could have you could have a, a, a student shifting from the from the Cherokee to the Cobb to the Paulding school system uh, over the course of a year as they, as they move from relative to relative to relative or 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 friend to friend to friend uh, and that's going to add yet another layer of 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 complications for for if if you're in this in in uh, in a classroom as a teacher. Before we get to the final
2: break of the show, I want to, Maureen go back to your conver- you're talking about uh, Gwinnett, uh, and they're actually having specific dates to phase in. This is in the context of the county. I believe I'm I, I may not have the exact number, but I'm close. Gwinnett County reported there were something like 225 identified cases of COVID-19 among workers, whether it's teachers, other kinds of staffers in the Gwinnett County school system. So they already know that they've had a pretty uh, good number of people in in the school systems identified with COVID-19 and at the same time have decided they want to try to phase things in. I find that I'm not quite sure how you, what you say about the logic of that, Maureen.
1: You know, I listened to um, Superintendent Wilbanks Banks do a very good interview with two uh, Parkview high school students last week, and I think he sincerely believes that his children, his students in Gwinnett County, 180,000 of them, are suffering from being out of school, and I think he has weighed that and feels like there is risk there, but it's controllable risk. Gwinnett, to its credit, is mandating masks. I think the issue in Gwinnett County, frankly, is going to be, is the workforce there? Uh, Our teachers are going to show up. You you were referencing, the I think it was 260. That includes uh, confirmed cases and exposures. That will increase when when school goes back. And I have talked to teachers who are already planning, because they have elderly family members, they might have a pregnant uh, male teacher, might have a pregnant wife, they have children with autoimmune issues, they are planning to move out of their own homes go back to school to teach as not to bring possible exposures back. So I want Georgia to be normal, but we're not, as Alan said, we're in a pandemic. It's a, it's a bad time. You know, I have people saying, please write some good news. I'm tired of all this bad news. I'm sorry. That's all we have right now is bad news in Georgia.
2: Well, There's a wonderful note to take us to our final break of the show. Um, We're going to come back and we are going to talk about uh, how this affects the female workforce in this country. It's one of those issues that is starting to get a little bit more attention. And it's a very important element of all this. You're listening to Political Rewind. Maureen Downey, Jim Galloway, Ellen Eldridge, Sarah Riggs Amico. Join me today as we talk about schools and the coronavirus. Uh, Jim Galloway and Sarah Riggs Amico teamed up uh, to uh, 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 give us a column that Galloway wrote. I think, Sarah, you sent him a text explaining the situation you found yourself in. And Galloway, you turned it into a terrific column that appeared in the uh, newspaper yesterday. It's online. Uh, Sam Burmastaz, why don't we post a link to that column because it's really interesting. And uh, Sarah, the point of the column is that you talk about how uh, not being able to send your kids to school is having an impact on your career. Five thirty-eight, as you know, did a piece last week. We talked about it for a little bit on this show in which their headline was Uh, that uh, coronavirus could be wiping out an entire generation of gains that women have made in the workforce. And then Time magazine more recently wrote a similar piece, an op-ed piece, uh, published an op-ed piece. And among the other things it said is this, motherhood is valorized in American culture because we don't want to admit the truth. We built an entire economy on the backs of unpaid and poorly paid women. Even as gender roles have shifted in the United States, the expectation that the mother will be the parent primarily responsible for maintaining the household and taking care of the children no matter what else she has on her plate is true today never has this been clearer than during the pandemic so Sarah you're dealing with it you're you are you are the caretaker in the family and as long as your children are home you're in the same situation that thousands and thousands of women whose careers are being at least Cut short for the time being. Talk about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I look. We tend to look at child care in this country as a personal issue, uh, but the reality is, academics and certainly working parents and single parents have known for a long time, child care is an economic issue. Uh, much the same way that we addressed um, retirement age and elder care with Social Security, at some point we're going to have to realize there is an economic. Uh, impact at the macro level to how we deal with childcare in this country, and we know from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that um, full moms, working moms with full-time jobs who are married, did on average 56% more childcare and household chores uh, than the corresponding father in the family, and and that's partly cultural, um, but it is something that has a dramatic impact when we're now layering on. Uh, the additional roles of being a homeschool teacher, uh, a referee, and armchair psychologist to our kids who are increasingly absorbing the anxiety of the COVID era. So, you know, one of the things that I think we're going to need to look at, if we want a sincere, not just reopening, but revitalization of the American economy, uh, there are tough days ahead. And Maureen's right. It's hard to say that right now. But but that is the news. Um, we can't give a better report. There are going to be some really tough times ahead for a lot of American families. And if you really want to revitalize the economy, we can't expect that half the population just disappears from the workforce. And for women who have fought um, over generations, you know, my grandmother made 50 cents on the dollar for most of her career to working men in the same jobs and was expected to be happy with it. Uh, The only time she had pay equity is when she had a union job. And so from my my perspective, those gains are very much at risk. And I think the research shows that as well. Uh, Childcare and the American childcare crisis was a problem long before COVID, just like structural racism, just like the digital divide, just like inequity by race and gender and class and geography in our healthcare system, what COVID has done is just expose it in a new way. You know, women are still making uh, 83 cents on the dollar uh, to men in the same jobs. We know that for Latino women here in Georgia, that number is about 48 cents on the dollar. For black women, it's about 54 cents, last I read. And that that gap is even bigger between working mothers and working fathers. So, yes, it's, many of us are going to have to make a choice whether to take an off-ramp from full-time employment.
2: Jim, uh, uh, the figure, I don't have the actual monetary amount, but uh, in the bailouts that have come from Congress, any any given airline received more federal funding for an individual airline than all of the money devoted for uh, expanding child care centers for uh, mothers who really need to be back in the workforce and can't as long as their uh, children are at home.
3: Yeah, there there are plenty of statistics out there that that show that 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 the the the, the, the female participation in the work work uh, force really declines uh, among among women with with kids ages six and under, i.e., those who cannot go into a public school system. So so that becomes so these daycare centers become extreme. They they are essential. Uh, To employment, even though, even though the cost of daycare is such that it it will eat up most of what you make, uh, uh, what what a mom makes uh, uh, in in the workforce. So it's 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 kind of it's it's kind of it's kind of hard there.
0: One one thing to point out, Ellen,
3: you're go ahead, Sarah. Oh, oh,
0: sorry. Uh, One thing to point out is for women who do take some time off, even temporarily. It's not just a question of depressed wages for a couple of years or six months or however long they reduce hours or leave the workforce. You're then putting your lifetime worth of earnings on a very different salary trajectory. And, and the research is very clear on this. So this has lifelong
4: implications. I remember when I first.
2: Um, star- <laughs>
4: I remember when I first. Uh, when my husband and I decided we were going to have children and I became pregnant, my both my mother and my sister lived in the same town in Woodstock with me, and I really felt like I was going to have the support system that I needed, and then life being what it is, they, they both were not available, and I remember going around and looking at the cost of daycare and the cost of what I was making at the time—this was 10 years ago—and it, it just—I broke down crying because— I couldn't realistically work or continue my career, and afford daycare. It just—it wasn't possible. And I—I I will sing his praises, to the end of the the end of the earth that my husband and I, our partnership, has made it possible. I don't understand how single parent families can manage.
2: Maureen, uh, we're running short of time, but this again—it's another one of these disparities that the coronavirus is exposing. These are fault lines that have existed in our society for generations, but the coronavirus has really brought them to the fore and given us very visceral understandings of them, Maureen.
1: They have, and I think the question here is, will we learn anything from this, or will this pass, and will we simply revert back? You know, we, we have to have incredible changes to our education system Uh, in the aftermath of this, and and this is looking ahead, and I'm maybe looking ahead a year, where I think, in fact, we're going to have to, for kids who lost out, consider year-round school, consider longer school days, consider, in the summer, intense summer and reading. We're going to have to help these families out. I I think right now we are in crisis mode, and it's hard to think that far ahead, but we have to address the damage that... There will be damage. We simply cannot avoid it. The question I think now to think about is how to mitigate it.
2: All right. Um, Maureen, that's about the last word we have for uh, today's Political Rewind. And I appreciate your, your uh, making those comments about how we rethink uh, the best of what we can do with education moving forward and how we tr- uh, teach our children. So thank you for that's a great way to end today's show. So Maureen Downey. Uh, We will continue to read Get Schooled, your uh, blog on education in the AJC. Ellen Eldridge, we uh, will look forward to all your writing about, health and medical report, the reporting you're doing at gpbnews.org. And on the radio, it was great to hear you on Morning Edition on NPR this morning. Uh, Thank you for being with us. Uh, Sarah Riggs Miko, come back. You know, now that you're not a full-time candidate, we can talk to you more often, and I hope you'll do that, okay?
4: Love that. Thank you.
2: <laughs> Thanks a lot. Jim Galloway, thank you. Um, uh, we'll be back again tomorrow for another edition of Political Review. On tomorrow, of course, is runoff day. We'll be talking about the uh, races on the ballot and more. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you tomorrow. In the meantime, please take care and stay Healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.